thank you for listening to this message brought to you by Living Word Church. We trust that as you hear the Word of God preached, you'll be encouraged and equipped to love God and do His will. If you're looking for a church home, please feel free to visit our Sunday morning worship service at 10 a.m. or visit our website at www.livingwordchurch.cc. And now for our message. Amen? We're on. Amen. Good morning, church. Super encouraging update. Thanks, Jason. Jason mentioned something that I also want to mention, which is that Lil Spin is in the building. If you don't know, if you don't know who Lil Spin is, that's Felicity Henrietta Hardish Hogan, who's right over there. Cutest, cutest baby you've ever seen. Lil Spin is her kind of in utero nickname. I'm not sure where it originated, but it's going to stick. So um, you can't hold her after the service because only Allie gets to do that, but you might be able to go say hi. Um, Good morning. It's good to be here. Let me mention one other thing. Um, On September 15th, 50 years ago or something, um, my dad was born. It's his birthday today. 63. Okay. Um, If it's someone else's birthday here too, we celebrate that. I apologize that I don't know, but my dad's one of the most relentlessly faithful people that I've ever met. So I want to take a minute to celebrate that. Um, We have a a really good passage this morning. So last week we started a new series in 1 Peter, and Dave really gave us a really illuminating introduction to um, the letter of 1 Peter and and what God spoke um, to the church in the first century through it, and also to how God might speak to us through it here in the 21st century. And so we're going to explore it a little this morning. Um, What I'd like to do is read our passage And then I want to take a minute, a full minute, I'm going to watch my clock to just quiet ourselves and kind of prepare our hearts um, for God's presence, which is here with us this morning. So don't get antsy if it's a full minute. If you're like, you see a sleep up there, it's fine. I will stop it at 60 seconds. I will make noise and the the pressure will break. Um, But let me read our passage and then let's do that and I'll I'll pray and we'll, we'll head in. I am going to read the first couple verses as well. I forgot to tell Christina that. Our passage today is chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. I'm going to start in verse 1, and we'll take it from there. So it starts with this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Amen. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, even though it perishes when refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was come to you, to come to you, they searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, but us. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Amen. Let's take a minute and quiet ourselves in God's presence. Lord, as we have heard your word in the scriptures, we also want to submit ourselves to the presence and work of Jesus among us here. He is the word of God incarnate, the word made flesh. So Lord, let your word make us this morning into a fleshly incarnate embodiment of Jesus in the world. The world needs to see Jesus and it's in us that you've designed for that to happen. So as we submit to your work this morning, we pray that you would shape us even further into a people whose life together embodies Jesus. Lord, let us show the world the love of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I know that was a long minute. Thank you for bearing with me. Um, so I think we have a picture. There you go. Let me explain. Legend has it that on an October evening in 1871, an Irish immigrant by the name of Catherine O'Leary, some of you know that name, was milking her cow and she must have squeezed just a little too tightly because her cow kicked over a lantern, starting what is known as the Great Chicago Fire. This fire grew so large, so quickly, that it destroyed most of the city of Chicago that existed at that time and tragically killed over 300 people. Lots of us are familiar with the legend of Mrs. O'Leary's cow, right? But what we're less familiar with, next picture, is that about 1,800 years before Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked that lantern in 64 AD, something kind of similar actually happened in another one of the world's most prominent cities. During the reign of Emperor Nero, the great fire of Rome broke out, when merchant shops storing flammable goods in the city somehow were ignited, causing a fire that burned for nine days and destroying two-thirds 
of the city of Rome. Can you imagine what Rome would be like now, given how incredible it is if two-thirds of the city hadn't been burned down? Thankfully, we had some people there with their iPhones to get pictures of these two incredible fires. I imagine these are just artistic renderings, but um, they give you some sense of the incredible power of those huge fires. Now, when it comes to the Great Fire of Rome, history is a little unsure exactly how the fire started. But legend has it that the Emperor Nero himself started the fire. Maybe by mistake, in a drunken stupor or something along those lines. Maybe intentionally, wanting to rebuild the city himself and further solidify his place in history. Of course, Mrs. O'Leary and her cow wouldn't come around for centuries to take the blame. So instead of blaming them, to take the pressure off himself, Nero decided to blame Christians. And in light of this, in about 64 AD, the first focused violent persecution of Christians began. Now, in 64 AD, the church had only been in existence, the the kind of New Testament church, for about 30 years, right? Since the death and resurrection of Jesus and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the birth of the church, about 30 years. And 30 years is about what we call the time of a generation, right? So you can imagine what the church would be like in about 64 AD, one generation after the book of Acts. The church's oldest original members would begin to pass on, right? The middle-aged original members would be entering their older years and the youngest members of the original church, like Peter and the disciples, who were only teenagers when Jesus called them to follow him, would at this time have been maturing kind of into adulthood and middle age. And 30 years is also enough, it's, it's just enough time, I think, that the difference that the gospel would have made would have become really clear and visible in their lives, right? 30 years is enough time for the difference of the gospel to take root and make a real substantial difference. At that point, as we read, as Andy read in the psalm earlier, the the people around them would have noticed that the Christians believe that even the kings of the earth belong to God, right? What a beautiful psalm. The world around them, the Romans would have noticed, the Gentiles would have noticed that the Christians were gave their primary allegiance to Jesus rather than Caesar or Nero or any of the other rulers of their day. And that difference would have begun to set the Christians apart in a very tangible way. And that difference caused some people to come and join them in following Jesus. But most people decided that they were troublemakers and revolutionaries who would eventually need to be suppressed and quieted down. So in light of all that, Nero's plan to blame the Christians for the great fire of Rome was uh, a crafty one because this group of people was already facing some pressure, right? They were already beginning to be uh, set apart and, and, and seen as distinct from the world around them. And we know that when that happens, the results aren't always good. So Nero's plan worked quite well. The pressure was taken off of him for the fire and put on another group, on the Christians. And all of this happened in 64 AD. The letter of 1 Peter, you might remember Dave mentioning last week, was almost certainly written within a couple years of this, right? In maybe 62 or 63 AD, leading right up to this period where the great fire would happen and the persecution of Christians would begin. It's written right in that time where the church is beginning to face that social pressure. Because of their devotion to Jesus, 
and their allegiance to his kingdom, they're already beginning to feel the ostracization and the rejection that comes with that. And they're having to figure out what it means to follow Jesus when that means going against the grain of the culture you find yourself in. Some of that, I think, sounds familiar to us, right? We live in a similar time. So let me take this brief history lesson just one little step further to give us some context. So after 64 AD and the persecution begins and the church begins to grow and develop, for about 250 years, the church faces that kind of marginalization and persecution. In the early church, after about 250 years, is suddenly, almost overnight, given incredible, unbelievable power and position in the world. Because the emperor at that time, Emperor uh, Constantine, in about 231, I think, AD, Constantine decides to make Christianity the official religion of the empire. Okay, so in 250 years, the church goes from the poorhouse to the halls of power, right? Out of nowhere, they go from being a persecuted, marginalized minority to people who sit in the highest seats and carry authority and influence in their culture. And this period of history is commonly referred to with the word Christendom, right? Now, you might have heard that word uh, to refer just generally speaking to the Christian world, right? Churches, Christian language, Christendom, all this stuff, right? Um, But historically speaking, Christendom refers to that particular era of time when the church was kind of moved from the margin to the center and was given some power and some authority and the, the church has clout in society, right? The church is a respected voice in the world, cultural capital, right? The church is enjoying state-sponsored privileges, all this good stuff, right? This is, this is familiar to us, I'm sure. In the world of Christendom, the world as we know it is functionally Christian. That's kind of how things work, right? You can assume that people are familiar with Christianity, with its language, with what it involves, and that most people are kind of, um, can, can understand the lingo, that kind of thing. And I'm sure that sounds familiar to us, right? In fact, that description might make you think of certain periods or things in your own lifetime. If you're a little older than me, it might make you think of something like the moral majority movement in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and so on. It might make you think of Billy Graham having the ear of so many presidents, right? Or of the presidential prayer breakfast, or of things like religious liberty, or prayer in schools, or the evangelical advisory board, right? These are just some uniquely American examples of what it looks like when the church is in the, kind of in the center of society. We still see bits and pieces of this in America today, right? Especially in the South and in the Bible Belt, we still see Christendom at work. But I think if we're honest, one of the realities we face is that Christendom is fading, right? Right before our very eyes, we're seeing this era of history come to an end in the world that we live in, in the Western part of the world. The world we live in just isn't Christian anymore. Now, whether that's a bad thing or maybe not such a bad thing is an important question, but it's not the question for this morning, and it's not the question that First Peter seeks to answer, right? The, fir- the question that First Peter seeks to answer, and the question for us is this, how do Christians live in a world like that? How is the church to live faithfully as an afflicted minority, rather than in the center with some power and some privilege? What does it look like to follow Jesus 
when you don't get to do it from a position of power? It's an important question, church, because that's where our world is heading. And our passage for this morning, you're thinking, you just read those verses, they don't say much about that. They don't. Our passage today doesn't get into the specifics of what that looks like, although it will in the coming weeks. It doesn't get into questions like, how are Christians to live faithfully in a world where master-slave relationships are normal? Or where male-female relationships run on power and patriarchy? Or where the state-church relationship is rocky at best? It doesn't get into that. What our passage for this morning does is lay the foundations for all those questions and more by proclaiming that the good news of the Christian hope doesn't depend on power and influence. It depends on the salvation won in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. That's what 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 12 have to say to us. That it's not that important whether the church holds power and privilege. All that's important in any society, in any era of world history, is that Jesus was killed and raised to life. And the Christian hope rests in that. What Peter does in the first chapter in these verses we read is remind his readers that the salvation they experience is not something that's temporal or circumstantial or arbitrary, right? He admits, Peter does, that it's, it's not been fully revealed yet, this salvation, and it won't be until the end of time, whatever that means. But that in spite of that, Salvation in Jesus is a concrete, tangible reality, right? According to Peter, what should define the life of the church in times of trial and suffering and persecution is not their circumstance, but the fact that God has acted in Jesus to give them new birth into a living hope. The Christians Peter writes to, he, he, he encourages them to, to anchor themselves in the fact that they have been born again into God's redeemed family. And that as members of that family, they are guaranteed an inheritance, right? One that he says can never spoil, can never perish, and will never fade. The idea of a family inheritance in the first century world was way more significant than we think of it now. It's, in, in many circles, it's still very relevant. But in the first century world, it was huge because it meant that both your present and your future were secure, right? That's what family inheritance meant. But here's the trouble with that idea. Number one, you have to be part of the family to receive a family inheritance. Simple enough, right? Number two, you have to live long enough to receive that inheritance. Also pretty simple. But it's possible, it might even be likely, I think it is likely, given the fact that this letter was sent to many churches, with many people, uh, many Christians in them, it's, it's quite likely, I think, that some of the readers of this letter in Peter's day had left behind everything to follow Jesus, including their families, right? Just like Peter and the other disciples had. Jesus himself said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, they can't be my disciple. Happy birthday, Dad. <laughs> but it's quite likely that some of the readers of Peter's letter would have left their families either geographically, physically, or would have been outcast or rejected by their families to accept the call to discipleship and to follow Jesus. So in following Jesus, in choosing to follow him, they've lost their family. Their family inheritance has been taken from them. And even if that hasn't happened, even if that hasn't happened, 
We've already heard that these are Christians who are facing a lot of pressure, right? And they're not stupid Christians. They know that that pressure could very well escalate and intensify and turn into violent persecution, which is what does happen. We see that. We know the story. They know that they might not live to receive their inheritance, even if they were still part of their uh, biological families. So Peter's proclamation to them, his good news to the Christians in light of all of that, is this. That this isn't just any inheritance. Because this isn't just any family. Right? This isn't just an inheritance as you know it, because this is not family as you know it. Members of this family, Peter says, have been born into it through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So not only have you been made family members in Christ, but your family status is anchored in the resurrection of someone from the dead. So even if your life is taken from you, you can't lose your inheritance because death has been defeated. Those who are in Christ have already died. Amen? Some of you will be familiar with the phrase, what is dead may never die. If you're already dead, you can't die. You've already been there, right? So even if your life is taken from you, Peter says, your inheritance is not. Jesus has defeated death. Church, the death we experience in the world cuts us off from inheritance. But the death we experience in baptism unites us to a greater one. So even if to follow Jesus, we lose everything in this life, we are united to something far greater. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus himself says, don't store up treasures on earth where moth and dust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Store up your treasure in heaven where God will protect it for you. What can separate us, Paul says, from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What can separate us from Christ and our inheritance in him? Nothing. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ, through him who loved us. I'm convinced, Paul says, that neither death nor life, nor angels or demons or the present or the future or any powers or height or depth or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And all of this, Peter says, results in great rejoicing. In fact, it produces in us a life of inexpressible and glorious joy, which results in praise and glory and honor to Jesus, in whose death, death has been redefined. Amen? In the death of Jesus, death itself has been redefined. So we can live lives of joy, of exuberant, revolutionary joy, because we need not even fear death, which is the greatest enemy of all. Amen? Our inheritance is secure. So the question then is, how do we live in light of our secure inheritance? How do we live in light of the fact that in Jesus, we've brought into, been brought into a new family and given a secure inheritance? There's lots to that that we'll get to in coming weeks. But one thing this morning that I think God wants to make clear to us is this. In light of the context of First Peter and the recipients in the world they lived in, and in light of the world that we find ourselves in, 
when the culture around you shifts and the world around you changes, do not be afraid. Do not fear. Your house is built on the rock, not on the sinking sand, right? Don't fret if your social position changes or if the church loses its power or its influence or its significance. If you yourself lose your own influence or respect or privileges socially, don't worry and also don't exhaust yourselves trying to get it back. Instead, live the life of the family you've been brought into. Live your identity as the people of God and God will take care of the rest, right? The changes that we see in the culture, in the world around us, the trials that may come from those changes, those are the wind and the waves. And if we had built our house on the sand, we would have reason to worry. But we haven't, right? On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking stand, but here where we stand, even the wind and the waves cannot shake us. I think, church, that the mistake we often make when we think about the church's relationship to culture, to the world around us, is to think that that the church needs to have that power, that significance, that influence, so that we can influence the culture for Christ. But I think that when we believe this, what often happens is that we have to abandon our integrity and our witness to get that power And so once we get it, we've lost who we are, right? There's danger that we gain the whole world, but we lose our soul. And what 1 Peter teaches us, as does the New Testament, as does the whole of the Bible, is that in spite of the allure and the appeal of that power and that influence and that significance, the church does not need them. Look at the life of Jesus. Jesus never held a position of power, of influence. He was homeless virtually. He had nowhere to lay his head. He was rejected by the powers that be, by the social structures of his day. And yet, Jesus, of course, established the kingdom of God on earth. The kingdom of God that Jesus established then is going to come in our day in the same way it came then. Right? It's going to come through meekness and humility and love. And we don't need any status or privilege or power to embody a life of meekness and humility and love. I think the mistake we sometimes make is believing that it's our job as Christians to change the world. And I know that probably rubs you the wrong way. I, I spent most of my life being told, We have to find our way as Christians to change the world. And in a sense, absolutely, absolutely. We're the people of Jesus. Of course, Jesus is changing the world. But that's just the difference, isn't it? I think it's a mistake to say that it's our job to change the world and more appropriate to say that Jesus has already changed it. That what Jesus accomplished isn't just a band-aid that deals with the surface or the superficial, but it's a surgery-level change that has changed the very fabric of the world, church, that the very grain of the universe has shifted in what Jesus has done. So we, as his people, don't have to make all the difference because Jesus has already made it. Our job is to live in the difference Jesus has already made. It's our job to embody the life that Jesus has made possible. 
So rather than exhaust ourselves trying to change the world, we are to be a changed world ourselves. The question isn't, does Living Word Church have enough power and influence to get the world around us to do what we think God would have it do? The question is, can Living Word Church embody a changed world, something so radical that the world around us looks and sees and is amazed? And then God will take care of the rest, church. God will bring in who God will bring in. He's the shepherd. We're sheep. The world is sheep too. That's the difference, right? Sometimes I think we think of ourselves as as, uh, shepherding on his behalf, right? But ultimately, we're sheep. The only difference from us and the world around us is that we've come into the fold of Jesus and that others haven't. Jesus' job as a shepherd to bring people in. It's our job to embody something that they might want to be brought into, right? To live in such a way that people are like, that's what I want to be part of. So the question is, how does God change the world? If Jesus has already changed the world, is changing the world even now, how does he go about doing that? I want to share one of my favorite quotes of all time with you. It's quite long, so bear with me. How does God change the world? This is, uh, by the way, this sounds very fancy. The author of this, his name is Gerhard Lofink. He wrote a book called, Does God Need the Church? Wrestling with that question of, why bother, God? You could just, you're omnipotent, you're omniscient, you could just do it, right? Does God even need the church? Of course, the answer is yes. And this is why he thinks God needs the church. How does God change the world? He begins in a small way, at one single place in the world. There must be a place that is visible and tangible where the salvation of the world can begin. That is where the world becomes what it is supposed to be, according to God's plan. Beginning at that place, this new thing can spread abroad, but it can't spread through persuasion or indoctrination, certainly not through violence. No, everyone must have an opportunity to come and see. All must have the chance to test and behold this new thing. Then, if they want to, which is to say, if God draws them, they can allow themselves to be drawn in to the history of salvation that God is creating in the church, in that one small place. What will drive them to do that is what? It can't be force, can't be moral pressure, it can't be the church changing the world. No, what drives them is the fascination of a world that is changed. The question, church of First Peter, the question every day for us as the people of God is, can we be that place? Can we embody a changed world in such a way that our neighbors are fascinated by it and drawn into it? Can we rest so secure in our inheritance that our witness shines brightly no matter how the winds blow or the waves crash? The good news this morning is that because of the work of Jesus, we can. Jesus has made the difference for us. Jesus has won us the freedom, liberated us from the powers of sin and death that we can freely live in such a way that this is true of us. Jesus has made it possible for us to embody the kingdom of God in the world today. 
It's a great comfort which Jesus gives to his church, says Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's a great comfort Jesus gives to his church. He says this, your job, church, is to confess, to preach, to bear witness to me, and I alone will build where it pleases me. Isn't that liberating? Confess and preach and bear witness, and Jesus will build his kingdom where he pleases. Do what is given to you and do it well, and you will have done enough. Live together in the forgiveness of your sins. That's one of my favorite sentences ever. Just live together in the forgiveness of your sins. Forgive each other every day from the bottom of your hearts. That's a changed world. Look at the antagonism that the world around us runs on, right? Hatred, bitterness, us versus them, polarization. Can the church be a place where none of that exists? Can the church be a place, can living word church, can we just be a place where we live together in the forgiveness of our sins every day? Where the fact that you and I have been forgiven by God so thoroughly changes us that we can't help but forgive each other. That creates space for us to to dwell together in unity and difference, right? If it was otherwise, we would all need to, to become uniform, to be on the same exact page, to believe and see everything the same exact way in order for us to do anything worthwhile. But because Jesus has liberated us to live together in the forgiveness of our sins, well, even in our difference, we'll wound each other. That's life in the church. But we can forgive each other. That's the freedom Jesus has won for us. So church, as we go this week, I'm just gonna pray and and dismiss us. We're over time. Um, But I want you to ask yourself this week and get together with someone else maybe and, and begin to talk through this. How can we be a changed world? right? How can we reprioritize or or shift the way that we think about what it means to be the church in such a way that we don't have to exhaust? I I don't know about you, but I often feel exhausted um, spending all of my time and energy and resources and thought, whatever else, trying to change the world. It's exhausting. And it's not always effective. But the idea of spending my time and energy and resources living life with all of you in such a way that the world looks at us and sees a changed world, that I can get behind. That excites me. I have a lot in common with some of you and I have nothing in common with all of you. That sounded kind of like Bilbo Baggins, didn't it, Faith? I have a lot in common with some of you, but nothing in common with many of you. But that's okay. That's the life of the church. The church isn't this perfect utopian reality. No, the church is God's. It's not ours. This is the church. We are the people of God in our differences, in our differences in age and gender and ethnicity and marital status and race and economic status and geographical location, whatever else it may be. That's the church. That's us. And our task is to live in the difference. Jesus has made. And I love, I love doing that alongside all of you. Truly, I do. That for me is an adventure, right? That is an adventure to live life in the forgiveness of our sins, in the freedom Jesus has won, resting secure in our inheritance and experimenting day by day with what it looks like to provide for our neighbors the fascination of a world that has changed. Amen. So let's explore that this week and going forward as we journey through First Peter, okay? Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll depart. Lord God, we...
we are your people, God. We are the sheep of your pasture. You are the great shepherd. Jesus said that my sheep hear my voice and follow and obey me. Lord, we are those sheep. And we hear your voice this morning calling us uh, to to embody something radical, God. Something, um, as Jason mentioned, that will cost us and will make us nervous and uneasy and will challenge us. But God, if it's not nerve, if it's not nerve wracking and challenging, is it the gospel? We want to be challenged and changed and transformed because it's when we experience that Lord, that we know that you're at work and that what we're doing is aligned with your purposes. So Lord, we pray together this morning, God, that you would work among us in just this way. Lord, that you would, <coughs> excuse me, God, that you would continue to create among us something that is radically different than the world in which we live. God, help us not to be too distracted or overwhelmed or stressed out by the wind and the waves of the world and the culture around us. Help us to find our appropriate place in all that, God, but let us first and foremost embody something among ourselves that people will be amazed by. What a privilege it is to get to do that on your behalf in the world. God, what a privilege it is to get to join with you in your mission to change and bless this world. God, we're excited for it. We love you, Lord. We're so grateful that you have saved us. You've allowed us to be born again into this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We're grateful that we have an inheritance that can never spoil, perish, or fade. And we agree with Peter that though we have not seen Jesus, we love him. And though we don't see him now, we are filled with joy at the prospect of that day when we finally will. Lord, when our salvation will be fully and finally revealed, when the curtain will be pulled back and the the thing that you have been doing all this time will be shown to all people. God, help us to faithfully embody that even now. Even while it's still a bit of a mystery, even while the curtain is still kind of covering things, help us to embody that, Lord. We long to be faithful. We long um, to honor you with the way we live our lives and to, um, to be there for the people in our lives that you want to draw in to the salvation you are bringing. So God, this week, we commit to that task and we pray that you would go with us, that your spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear where you're working. And Lord, that you would bond us together in love and in unity, God, in meekness and humility, and that the kingdom of God would come in this church on earth as it is in heaven. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Go in peace and be the people of Jesus this week. And heed what Bill has to say. Wasn't that good? You know, once more, uh, you know, this, we're just so grateful for the young men and women who have come into our church and are carrying the torch of the Lord Jesus Christ, the banner of our salvation, and Adam and Allie, and we're so blessed. Very good job, Adam and Allie. <clears throat> we want to thank you for the work you do with our 
young people too. Yeah, because I have grandkids and I know how much time you're spending out there mentoring them and blessing them. So uh, we really appreciate it. It's a great morning in our church as we see these young people carrying the, um, the testimony of Jesus into the lives of our lives, into our old lives, and into the lives of this community. Jason and Lisa Didani, dear friends, they've been planted, the next generation going out proclaiming the gospel, and Adam and uh, Andy and Michelle this morning um, was just an example of the, how the gospel, God uses his church and the gospel that goes forward with the next generation proclaiming salvation in Jesus Christ. So I, as, a, you know, as a senior guy around here, I just want to tell you, God, I'm very thankful for that as I see these young men and women proclaiming your word, bringing salvation to the next generation, and um, giving hope to the world. And I, I would say, too, there's more of you that carry that in your heart that God wants to use. And uh, I just encourage you this morning. It says in Philipp, Paul says in Philippians to press, press in to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of you. Because there's more of you that carry that burden to carry the gospel to the world. So we thank you. God bless. Have a good week.